0: Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. When it comes to interpreting the Bible, there are many ways to go wrong. We run into passages that may not agree with us, texts that seem to not agree with each other, and verses that are simply strange. Let's listen in to Carl, Amy, and Todd, and hear how we should be using the deep-rooted traditions of the Christian faith to help our biblical interpretation today.
1: Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. The gang's all here, the three most popular people in the Reformed evangelical world. Uh, My co-hosts, Amy Bird and the reverend Todd Pruitt and I am Carl Truman a teacher at Westminster Seminary and Pastor a Church just outside Philadelphia today we want to reflect upon the importance of doctrine and tradition those are two very important concepts uh, in the church uh, and yet recent debate about the trinity the recent ongoing debate about the trinity has indicated that not all evangelicals seem to understand either the importance of doctrine, or how doctrine is connected to the church's tradition of teaching. Often as Protestants, we think that tradition has a horribly Roman Catholic sound to it. We, it seems to imply that scripture is, is less than authoritative. Whereas in actual fact, of course, what historic Protestantism has always held to is a scripturally sourced and regulated form of tradition. The difference between us and Roman Catholics is not that they hold tradition and we reject it. It's that they hold to a tradition that can stand somewhat independent from Scripture, Mm -hmm. while as for us, Scripture is both the source and the norming norm of our tradition. Mm -hmm. Uh, And on the doctrine side of things, sometimes uh, evangelical Christians are a little bit wary of, of the word doctrine. It sounds a bit perhaps esoteric or a bit cerebral. Uh, In fact, I think uh, doctrine is simply a way of talking about correct descriptions of divine realities. I was struck recently by an essay from Robert Barron uh, on Augustine. The very first line of this essay is this, and it sums it up beautifully, 20 centuries of, of, of doctrinal discussion within the church. And the line is this, in the end, it all comes down to a correct description of God. And the question facing us today is, is the dominant description of God as embedded in our evangelical tradition a correct one? And how are we to understand traditions of teaching within the church? Todd, Amy, any thoughts on that?
2: You know, two words that spring to mind, and and the three of us have talked about this a lot, um, Mm -hmm. a lot off the air, some on the air, um, about the difference between um, confessionalism and biblicism. Which which goes to uh, theological method, you know, theological method being, you know, how we approach history and tradition, how we approach um, epistemology and that kind of thing, uh, how we how we develop our, our our doctrinal categories and definitions of words, and there's an important distinction between confessionalism and, and biblicism. Unfortunately, the popularity. Of of biblicism oftentimes leads to this uh, no creed but the Bible sort of thinking, and so anytime you do employ uh, words connected to our tradition or invoke uh, patristics, um, you're looked at as at, you know possibly Roman Catholic um, and doing with tradition what we actually don't do um, with tradition as 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 Protestants. But I wonder if we could explain kind of briefly just the difference between. Uh, confessionalism and biblicism. You know, it, to the untrained ear, when you say biblicism, it's almost like, what, are you criticizing the Bible? Are you anti-Bible? I, know. I
3: think that sola scriptura is almost attached to biblicism now.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah it, 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 oftentimes sola scriptura becomes me and the Bible, and that's all I need. Right, yeah. and it's like yeah. your yeah. own, own
3: private, personal judgment mm-hmm. detached from all of the history <laughs> of the church mm-hmm. and, the, and uh, submitting to the Bible within the communion of the saints. Yeah. Would be really so, say the difference. S-
2: yeah, so we would describe biblicism as an approach to the Bible that basically reads it outside of, its, outside of the context of the historical church. Is, is that a fair way of, of describing it?
1: I think so. I, I would also add that, that biblicists are never as biblicist as they like to think they are. Mm. We are all dependent upon our environments and Mm -hmm. the histories and the traditions to which we belong for our reading of any text to some extent. Mm -hmm. And the pure biblicists are, are not as pure as they like to think. I mean, one of the interesting things about the Trinitarian controversy has been how adamant... Uh, a number of men who clearly do not teach Nicene Trinitarianism Mm -hmm. have been to claim the label of Nicene Trinitarian uh, because they want the historical authority and cachet mm-hmm. that comes with that they know that, that by denying their Nicene Trinitarians they place themselves outside of the historical church yeah. and yet their theology is clearly developed in isolation from it I actually spoke directly with one of them and said okay you you say eternal generation is is complete nonsense what have you read in the 4th century that you found wanting on the issue for, uh, of eternal generation and this person told me they had not read anything from the 4th mm-hmm. century, primary or secondary on this issue yeah. prior to their rejection <laughs> jection of eternal generation as nonsense and that struck me as yeah that's that's on the one hand that's biblicism gone mad that you are yeah. arrogantly ignoring what your fathers in the faith worked long and hard to develop in their dialogue with scripture yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you're also drawing, perhaps unconsciously, on contemporary models of which you seem unaware. Uh, when you start using uh, the agenda of feminism slash complementarianism to provide you with your categories for understanding Scripture, what are you doing? You're importing alien categories in, mm. even though you're claiming merely to be following the Bible. Mm. Right. right,
3: so fighting against liberalism becomes the norming norm <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> instead it, yeah. of uh, traditional dogmatics.
1: And ironically, it becomes a form of liberalism because one of the hallmarks of liberalism is it ignores the history of the church. <laughs> right. It just wants to get back to, to sort of historicize the Bible. And you can historicize the Bible in a conservative way that looks orthodox, or you can historicize it in a liberal way that does not look orthodox. Mm. But methodologically, it's a very similar move. Right, right. You know,
2: it's interesting, we were talking about this uh, earlier. Um, one of the things you'll find when you go back and read, particularly as, as I've read, the great thing about this Trinitarian controversy, one of the great things, is that I've gone back and read, in many cases, reread, um, Cappadocians who I haven't read in years. And one of the things you find over and over again with these men from the fourth century, is that they were saturated in Scripture. So one of the reasons we appeal to tradition in positive ways is because uh, there were smart, godly, Bible-saturated men back then that we ought to listen to. And so if somebody wants to depart from Nicene uh, orthodoxy, then they need the burden of proof as you mentioned earlier Carl the burden of proof on is on them to prove that those men were wrong
1: yeah I think that's what what taking the church seriously means yeah. it's very clear that the that we stand at the end of, of nineteen post apostolic centuries after Christ of the church reflecting on scripture mm-hmm. can the church get things wrong yes can the church get very important things wrong yes but the onus is on those who think the Church has got it wrong for 19 centuries, 15 centuries, 8 centuries, whatever doctrine you happen to be looking at. Right. The onus is on them to prove that the Church is wrong. Yeah. And, uh, and to
2: remember that you know there were Puritans and Reformers who yeah. had no problem saying that um, uh, the Pope was the Antichrist, who at the same time said, nevertheless, we agree with the Roman Catholic Church on the Trinity
1: oh yeah yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, i mean and that's the irony of this current situation in that frankly the best writing on the trinity is being done by roman catholics Uh, Gilles Emery, matt levering people like that those are the guys on the whole you're going to go to to look at your trinitarian teaching and there's a huge irony a huge irony there that we who claim to take the scripture seriously seem to find ourselves now in a tradition where great chunks of our uh, friends and and co-belligerents in in the gospel mm-hmm. uh, stand outside the historic tradition. Uh, right. it's, it's quite staggering. Quite well, staggering.
3: I think another thing this whole debate has revealed, um, especially to me as a layperson, is you know as the three of us are are talking, there's there's some academic language here that that is specific and, and it's language that the church has given us. But um, you know I think lay people assume that at least our theologians are being trained. In this classical theology, and they know this language, and they know the meaning, what it means when it's being used. However, this debate has, I think, revealed that, um, you know, maybe there there hasn't been a lot of training, mm-hmm. academic training, in the patristics, right. in Reformed Orthodox yeah. thought, yeah. even.
2: And one of the things that's become clear to me, and, and we, the three, again, the three of us have talked about this, is that among well known and influential theologians and writers, some of the the classical language or that language that belongs to the to the development of, of the church's doctrine during the classical period, mm-hmm. some of the terminology is either not known or it's misunderstood. And so when right. words like the ontological trinity and the economic trinity are used what we what we've found is that different meanings are being impor- being imported yeah. right. into yes. to those words when when somebody refers to for instance you know the eternal godhead and then it becomes clear that they're talking about something that's probably belonging to the imminent or or the the uh, the economic trinity mm-hmm. so there's been a lot of confusion on this because of ignorance about definitions of key terms
1: Yeah, I think that goes to a pedagogical problem, that you have a a division among disciplines. What we have is a generation of biblical scholars who are simply not competently trained in classical theological categories. That's not a criticism of them as people. It's a criticism of the educational system as a whole. Mm -hmm. It's hard to be uh, up to date in your own discipline and also competent in other disciplines. Uh, So I think that is a major part of the problem. And one of the great frustrations is the way that technical language is being used by some biblical scholars in a way that betrays their ignorance of the tradition. Mm -hmm. And, And yet they seem adamantly stubborn in their refusal to learn the tradition. Simply shouting the word homoousios louder and louder and louder doesn't solve the problem. Simply putting, uh, you know, equality of the Godhead in caps lock in an email (laughs) doesn't solve the problem. These are complex distinctions and terms that only exist in stable form in a relatively complex system of doctrine of which it appears most of our biblical scholars today are less than blissfully ignorant
2: yeah and and there's a doxological issue here and mm. because you know Carl we, uh, and Amy we were talking earlier I think before we came on air about the fact that and you mentioned it already you know doctrine is is describing god correctly Mm-hmm. And and the reason why we do that primarily is because of doxology. It's to worship Him. It's out of love for Him. It's out mm-hmm. of reverence for Him. Mm-hmm. So when somebody, for instance, yeah. um, uh, reads a, a, a vulgar uh, analogy onto the Godhead, like saying the, you know the Father is the husband, the Son is the wife, yeah. and the and the Holy Spirit is the child, <clears throat> the reason one of the reasons why we react against that so firmly is because that is diminishing the glory of God, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and, and by, it's harmful to the church.
1: By right. analogy, you know, it's important that I have an accurate description of my wife, right. so that I can ascribe to her appropriate attributes. Yeah. If I describe my wife as a dog, mm-hmm. that's bad. Right. That's bad. If I describe her as a camel, that's bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet we seem to be very tolerant yes. of inappropriate ascriptions to the Godhead. You know, one of the biggest laughs, well, not it's not a laugh, one of the saddest laughs in all this is, like, well, some of these guys are now changing their opinions. Well, that's mm. good, but they've been teaching this for years. Right. Mm-hmm. It's out there. You shouldn't be teaching other people. You shouldn't be training men for the gospel if you actually don't have uh, an accurate grasp of the right. Christian tradition and faith mm. yourself. Right. You're not an ordinary person. You know, I, I expect people in my congregation to make mistakes about the doctrine of God. But they don't aspire to teach others about the doctrine Mm -hmm. of God. They aspire to be taught better. I think once once you're standing up in front of a classroom or in the pulpit and you're making these mistakes, man, it's a whole lot more serious. It's a whole lot more serious.
3: Mm -hmm. James has strong words about about teachers.
1: Yeah, Which and Luthor himself the, turned around and said, oh, James, if only you'd taken your own <laughs> advice. <So. laughs> right, right. Well, and Amy,
2: one of the things obviously you've been doing a lot is writing about this from a layperson's perspective. And right. you see firsthand because of part of your labors as a writer, you see firsthand how this stuff is imported uh, primarily into women's literature from from lovely people. Uh, people who are admirable in many ways, but, but they get very sloppy about their doctrine and their categories and their language in regard to God.
3: Right. I mean, the Trinity is the highest point mm-hmm. of the doctrine of God. And so if that is affecting the lay people and Christian publishing, and we're reading books where— you know, the bestsellers for women's ministry, where the Trinity is described as three beings. Right. I mean, things like this should be alarming to us. And, um, you know, I just see so many instances of that. That is a more blatant one. But then there's a lot more subtle readings that I'm having, you know, books— doctrines of um, justification, salvation, um, which I'm very thankful for, but then you still see a very weak um, doctrine of God in these women's <laughs> books, and, and I know that it's because so many women have not been catechized well in the yeah. church, yeah. and their leaders have not been equipped well in that yeah. way, and there are, there are good ways we can invest in lay people teachers as well that... Yeah. We're talking about all this academic language, but there are some basics. We have our confessions.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're, you're putting, you know, to, to move the di- discussion in a really practical direction, catechizing is important, mm-hmm. um, you know, making sure that people are properly catechized. Uh, I also think that the songs we sing, Yes. you know, they, I, thankfully – well, at my church, I, you know, my, the joke is, you know, let's sing Psalm 157, Death to the Infidel, to the tune Smallpox, you know. <laughs> you can go to the other extreme sometimes. But, uh, uh, you know, when, I, when I'm doing the rounds and maybe speaking at a college or, or, or something, quite often the songs that are sung are very emotional and sentimental. And do not hesitate to, to make the jump from our sentiments and emotions to God. Now, I do think... You know that the Bible uses language of anger and love, etc., by God. There are obviously analogies between the way the world is and the way that God is, but we need to be very careful that even in the songs we sing we we make the difference between the creature and god clear that we don't allow an easy jump from one to the other and that all creaturely imperfections and limitations are removed from such language as we apply it to the godhead and i you know i, I think that songs have a significant role here mm-hmm. uh, songs too need to have a good doctrine of god right yeah,
3: also yeah I, catechizing. Um, I, I heard psalm 110, david's yeah. creed yeah. Seven verses. Yeah. Yeah. There you I, go. I
2: heard I heard I think it was Scott Swain say one time that, um, you know, God created us in his image. And so therefore there are ways that we are like God. But God yeah. is not like us. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah.
2: And, and that's 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 important. And one of the things I heard you say one time, Carl, is is that one of the values of the creeds and confessions is that it means that not every church member has to have a Ph.D. in theology. Because we have the creeds and confessions. That's part of the value of our tradition is that not everybody has to have, and Amy, you alluded to this earlier, not everybody has to have all of this formal training because we have so many faithful men in the past who Mm -hmm. have had that.
3: It's a gift to the church.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I mean, obviously we could go um, on and on, uh, but we're really glad that you joined us for this uh, discussion. Um, It's certainly one that's going to uh, continue, and in many ways and in many formats, again, the doctrine of God is primary. Um, It's not secondary or tertiary. The doctrine of God is primary, and it needs to reclaim that primary space among we who are are Protestants. Um, We'd love for you to check out our website, uh, mortificationofspin.org. We'd love for you to consider uh, possibly contributing to the Alliance um, and its ongoing work. And also, we have a resource we'd we'd like to give away uh, under the title, it's an MP3, uh, The Developing uh, Tradition from the Reformation Until Now. Uh, And it's uh, an MP3 from uh, the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. We'd love for you to to get a hold of one of those. So uh, please visit our website. And uh, until next time, we'll talk to you later.
0: Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, Bully Pulpit, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen who hold the historical creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith, and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. Please visit mortificationofspin.org to read the blog, find free resources, and support the podcast. And come back next week to hear a thought-provoking interview on medical ethics with lawyer and award-winning author Wesley J. Smith. So I thought, who were these patients? A couple, the three of them were people like with multiple sclerosis. One of them was mentally ill. And you know what that mental illness was? Self-harming. So the, quote, treatment for self-harming was to kill the patient and wow. then harvest the organs. Wow. I can think of nothing more dangerous than telling somebody who's having a terrible time getting through the night because of uh, anguish or or depression that their deaths have greater value than their lives but that is precisely what is happening in the euthanasia juggernaut in Belgium and the Netherlands and it is the logical consequence of deciding that that the purpose of society is to prevent suffering and that killing is an acceptable answer to the problem that's next time Don't forget to head over to mortificationofspin.org to find The Developing Tradition from the Reformation until now. And visit and subscribe to the Mortification of Spin blog so we can keep you updated with the latest articles, podcasts, and more. We'll talk to you next week.
3: Carl, you're making a ton of no- noise while you're lounging like a boss <laughs> while Todd's shimmer. trying to... What, what this,
1: this?
3: Like moaning, laughing. groaning, moving your arms back. scratching.
2: Like... Sorry. <laughs>
1: Belching. You know, as you two have, it's been a long, bad week for me. <laughs> um, a long, bad week.
0: Yeah, that's true. It has, hasn't it? Yeah.